around the entire tree until it encases it and then kills it. And so this is what it looks like there. You might go, wow, look at that just intricate web. What happens is that intricate web is developed to the point where the tree actually dies. And you can go into the forest and you can see these intricate webs. They're all these just vines. They look almost like they're dead. But what thing it is dead is the tree itself. It doesn't exist. It's just this large, uh, looming uh, web of vines. And I tell you this because that tree at one time was vibrant. It was beautiful. It was full of life. But what happened is the strangler fig moved in and it literally killed it. It was a slow process, but it eventually happened. And this strangler fig and what takes place on these uh, walnut trees is a picture of what has happened in so many churches over the last 2,000 years. Started small, but eventually weaved a web of things that were not true. Churches that once were vibrant, filled with the worship of the Lord, just like we had just this morning. Uh, sending out missionaries, the advancement of the gospel, uh, people being developed as disciples of Christ. And now, in some cases, they're just shells. You can go to churches, uh, some churches, they're just museums, or they've been repurposed. Some of the churches, well, they still exist, they still call themselves a church, but Jesus isn't there. And so, I want you to understand that there is a war going on for the life of churches around the world. And this morning, what I would like to do is answer the question, what is the adversary strategy to lead people astray and to destroy churches? Because unless you are aware of the strategy and of what is taking place in this very time, it'll be kind of like a strangler fig, and it just kind of hits, and it weaves its web. A church like Fellowship Bible Church if it does not apply the principles given to us in 2 Timothy, specifically in this passage, we're in for a world of hurt and trouble. So let me just kind of bring you up to speed and give you context. A couple weeks ago, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 26, where God is talking about that there are people that are literally ensnared by Satan, being held captive by him to do his will. So you see in verse 26, he says that, what is needed is people able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So you need to understand that if you are not a Christian, you are not truly trusting in Christ, you are caught in a web. Satan, in a sense, has you in his dominion. But even believers can be ensnared. They can be influenced. Although that Satan cannot possess a believer, there's no demonic possession of a believer, he can influence and he can ensnare. And it happens. And so last week we looked at chapter 3 beginning in verses verse 1 through 5. If you want to see what this looks like, the outworking of it, he says, but realize this, verse 1, that in the last days difficult times will come. From the time of Christ's first coming to his second coming, it's referred to as the last days. And he says, difficult, dangerous, hard to bear, troublesome times will come. Why? For men, anthropos, meaning men, women, boys, girls, humanity, humans will be lovers of self. And he goes on with about 19 descriptive phrases 
of what it looks like to be ensnared by the devil. What does it look like when Christ is not at the center of a human heart? And he concludes it by saying they will, verse 4, be treacherous, reckless, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If you will not have Christ, then you will find yourself ruling your heart. You will be a lover of self and you'll be a lover of pleasure. And that means you will not be a lover of God. What is needed is the gospel. What is needed are people that will experience not only forgiveness of sins, but life with God. When you see mushrooms growing up in the forest or in your backyard, that tells you there is something dead underneath the soil. And when you see the manifestations given to us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it tells you that there is something rotten in the church or something rotten in society. And this same Satan who is bringing devastation to the world is seeking to bring the destruction of churches. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is going to tell us exactly how he does that. First thing you need to understand are the the people that are used. How does he do this? Well, just like uh, we talked about last week, that God, God uses the rescued to become rescuers. Those who have believed the gospel, have received forgiveness of sins, they become the very ones that start telling people the good news about Jesus. The rescued become rescuers. Well, Satan uses the deceived to become deceivers. They not only themselves are believing things that are not true, they start trying to pass that on to others. In chapter 3, verse 5, he talks about the people that are used. They will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You see, they're going to hold to a form of spirituality. They might have religious titles. They might have a religious institution. They might be pastors. Uh, They might be recognized as spiritual authorities. There is some semblance of spirituality. They might sound good. They might know all the Christian cliches. But if they do not truly know Christ and they're believing the truth of his word, he says, this is these are the people that will be the ones that Satan will use. They'll hold to a form of godliness, but they will have denied its power. See, if you are not trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you don't have a vibrant, vital relationship with Christ. You are devoid of the spiritual power that comes by virtue of the resurrection. And he says, folks that come across as spiritual, but they truly don't know Christ, but they'd like you to buy into whatever they're selling. He says, avoid such men as these. These people that are used, I believe they they can be very sincere, but I believe they're sincerely wrong. There is a plan of attack. There is a, a process in which they follow, in which Satan leads people astray, and he brings about destruction of churches. And it's actually spelled out here in verses 6 through 8. It's just a three-part, very simple plan. But let me just show you what it is. It begins with the word infiltrate. You see, the deceivers have to infiltrate the homes, the lives, and the hearts of those who are either seeking truth or those who actually know Christ and the gospel. So look what he says. He says, avoid these men, verse 5. He says, for among them are those 
who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the first part of the plan is they have to infiltrate, they enter. The word literally means to slip in or to creep in, like try to be like unnoticed. And they come into households, they're trying to gain a hearing. They want to be mainstream and they want you to accept them. And let me just tell you how this happens today. Sometimes it happens when you just let them through the front door. But in our society, usually these ideas that come from false teachers usually come by way of like you finding them on TV or you going to their website or their blog or you uh, actually listening to their radio program or watching them on YouTube or following them on Facebook or just buying their book. They want to get in. They have to infiltrate and they'll be attractive. They'll be winsome. They'll want a following and they'll certainly want you to engage their ideas and find them to be valid. So the first part of the plan of how Satan leads people astray begins with infiltrate. But the second then is to manipulate. Notice what they what Paul writes. He says, among these people, they will enter into households and they will captivate. That is a military term, meaning taking prisoners of war. What it's doing is highlighting the spiritual combat that exists. They will seek to captivate, take you over. And here he says, they'll captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various uh, impulses. Now, this isn't a description of all women. He is saying this is actually taking place. And he cites these weak women. Weak women are those who are immature. They're childish, silly. Um, They're especially burdened by their sins. They're not grounded. They are not established and strengthened in the truth or the gospel. They're weighed down. They become easy targets. And what this looks like is false teachers, people that are believing things that are false and teaching it, they're going to sound spiritual. They might even use some Bible verses, some things that you might have heard at church or at Sunday school. and like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds kind of good because they're looking to win an audience, but they're looking to start changing your mind. It is manipulate. It is to capture. And notice what he says. They're weak women. They're weighed down with sins. They're burdened from their past. And sin has a way of bringing tremendous guilt into our lives. That guilt is meant to drive us to Christ, to trust him for forgiveness, for wholeness, to know what it means to be emancipated from your sins. You can't do anything. Christ is the answer. What they usually do, it usually comes in one of two camps. One camp is like you're feeling bad about your past or your current behavior. It is to what we could call asceticism. It's the idea that there is this artificial self-denial, and they'll promote it. And it's like a form of legalism. You need to do all these things and follow these checklists, and if you'll do that, you are going to be fine with God, and you're going to experience victory in life. It is a rule-based religion. But on the other hand, false teachers also come to the other side of the equation, and that is what we could call antinomianism, or... Uh, to teach all sorts of possibilities that sin really doesn't matter. Antinomianism. Anti, not, nomos, law. No law. You don't have to follow what God says in his word. After all, it's just, it's all grace. You're, you're just covered by that. 
Those sins that you're doing or you're so burdened by, that is so unnecessary because it's just not really a big deal at all. And either one of these two sides of that is a danger. False teachers are looking to capitalize. They want to win an audience. They want to manipulate. And so you've got women, in this case, he's saying, but they're really to be all people. They're burdened by their sin. They want an answer to my guilt and my pain and my problems. And false teachers say, hey, we have got an answer. We can help you out. And they are also, he said, led on by various impulses. They're swayed by all kinds of evil desires. It could be sexual in nature. It could be just like, I, I want to be liked. I want to be esteemed. I want to be associated with these people. They sound so intellectual. This sounds good. I feel good about this. And after all, it's about my feelings. And they seem to have a cure for what I need. And so they grab onto it. But notice what the text says. They're weighed down with sins. They're led on by various impulses. Verse 7, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of of the truth. In 1 Timothy 2.4, he actually refers to the knowledge of the truth as coming to those who believe the gospel. They're trusting in Christ. They never get to the point where they're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't mean that they're not learning. They just never arrive to the answer that God gives, relationship with Christ. And so what happens is they buy the things that are not true. And they may be very well be in churches, these people. You see, if you're involved in a church that doesn't really teach the word, there is no doctrine that's being developed in your life. You're not exercising discernment. You're not being taught what the word says. You personally don't actually have a lot of engagement with the scripture. Reading the Bible is just like something that just rarely, if ever, even happens. And what happens is you become doctrinally deficient. You don't actually have a means of discerning. So when these false teachers kind of emerge and they say some, say some things that sound pretty good and you're needing help, guess what? You'll subscribe. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. People say that ignorance is bliss. It is not. Ignorance isn't bliss. It is the back door for deception. And this is how it happens. It's the plan. Infiltration. Manipulation. Changing your thinking. Captivating your heart. And the final aspect of this is separation. Look at verses 8 and following. He says, what's going to happen is they're going to try to separate the truth of people from the truth of Scripture and those who teach it. So he says, verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. So here he's listing two people. These two guys are not actually found in the Bible. They are the names, they're names given to two of the magic magicians that were working to basically contradict everything Moses was doing when, in the book of Exodus. So these magicians, although they are not named in Scripture, in the Jewish writings, they give two of these magicians names, Janus and Jambres. And what they did is they tried to confront Moses, to bring about a separation. They're saying, you know, God, Moses is saying, God says, let my people go. And he's doing these miracles. Well, they tried to produce their counterfeit miracles. And at first they were successful in doing that. Basically tried to show, like, listen, Moses doesn't have the corner on the truth. You shouldn't listen to him. Pharaoh, you don't need to follow him because, listen, we can do these same sort of things. 
And they could for a while. But then God shows himself sovereign and supreme. In the Jewish tradition, they named two of these music magicians. And they said that what happened is once they saw that indeed the power of God was working through Moses and they could not replicate or fabricate the miracles that he was doing, then what they decided to do was to join. They became pretend believers. They became what's called a proselyte, someone that would like join the Jewish faith. They weren't actual believers, but now they're joining the Jewish crowd. And what happened is, is that they waited for the opportunity. And the, the wilderness wanderings gave them that opportunity. You remember when Moses leading the, peop- the people to Israel, the Israelites, uh, the promised land, there was always this instigation against Moses. He don't need to follow him. I mean, even Moses' own brother and sister joined in. You know, is God only speaking to you? There was always this vision to try to create separation between Moses and the people. You remember uh, when Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments and the law, and he comes down. Remember what takes place? What were the people doing? Waiting and praying and earnestly hearing what God might have to say? Oh, no. They had the party going on in full bore. They, uh, they're like, man, we don't know what happened to Moses, so what we need to do is create ourselves a God to follow. And Aaron's like, okay, why don't you bring your gold? Let's see what happens. Remember, Aaron said, listen, I'll throw all this gold in the fire. We'll see what jumps out. Out came this golden calf, right? That's what Moses was told by Aaron. And all the people, man, they just let it loose. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, was in full display. Sexual immorality, carousing, wickedness, wildness, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Moses showed up. And remember, God said, I want you to put those that are bought into that, put them to death. The Jewish people believe that those two magicians, Janus and Jambres, were two of the people that were killed on that day as a result of that event. So in Jewish tradition, these people would be very familiar. And that is why Paul is referencing them to Timothy. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, creating separation, so these men, these false teachers, they also oppose the truth. They're men of depraved mind, meaning debased, and they're rejected in regard to the faith. It's of no value. It is worthless. And that's what they do. They'll use false doctrine. They'll use a false narrative. They'll create division, divisiveness, anything to create separation from the truth and those who teach it. That is the plan. That is what's been going on for ages. It's infiltration, manipulation, separation. These people, don't think that they got like horns on their head or anything like that. They're going to be sincere, probably pretty winsome, attractive. Even though they're sincere, though, they are sincerely wrong. And they're leading people astray. And you need to know their final outcome. Verse 9. He says, But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas and Jambres' folly was also. At some point, they're going to be found out that indeed they were lost, that they were ensnared by the devil, whether it be when they die, uh, with the coming of Christ, perhaps uh, discerning believers are going to be able to see through. Sometimes false teachers, they just implode or explode. And you're seeing like, wait a second here. Something is severely wrong. You need to know that that is the outcome. You see, evil has a limited shelf life. Yeah, I know it's prevalent. I know folks are being led astray. It looks like false teachers like 
are multiplying like crazy, but you need to know in the end, God wins. However, you need to understand that you have to exercise discernment. We're living in an age where Christians are so gullible. The whole idea of exercising discernment, even being able to divide right and wrong, even being claiming that you could actually know it from God's word, is not becoming popular. It's becoming rare. And the battle for the hearts of people is raging. I mean, it takes place all the time. And I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about how do you apply this passage in today's world. I mean, right now, we've got crying needs, right? People in their lives, nothing's working, so what do you do? Well, all you have to do is turn on the TV. You got any from, for anyone from Dr. Phil to a whole host of people that are going to counsel you to help you with the troubles and the challenges that you're facing. And so, guess what? Christians recognize this. And so, well, you know what? We'll have our own Christian network. And so there are now multiple Christian TV networks. Some of the folks that are on there, very good. They are sound biblically. I've met or know some of them. Uh, They're teaching the word. On the other hand, there's some folks that are not helpful. They're actually destructive. Some of them uh, abide by something that's called the prosperity gospel. And this is the idea that uh, what God wants is you to be rich. He wants you healthy and wealthy. And they're going to help you achieve this end. What they'll do, and they'll look right into the camera, and the music will be playing, and they'll say something like this. What you need to do today is you need to plant a seed by sending the largest bill that you have or the largest check that you can write. You send it in, you plant that seed, and watch what God's going to do. And what's happened is what? Infiltration. They're in their home. Manipulation. Here you got well-meaning people. They have hurt. They've got pain. They've got sickness. They need resources. And they do it. I'll tell you who gets rich from this. It's not the people sending the checks. It's those televangelists. They're actually making quite a bit of money. It's a successful business. But what happens is people realize eventually this was phony. And for some people, they walk away from any idea of even looking into the Christian faith, having been ripped off like that. These phony promises turn them away completely from the truth. By the way, this method, this isn't new or novel. This has been around for a long time. Um, uh, During the medieval ages, the Catholic Church had something that they, they created purgatory, which is this idea that you pay for your sins in this life, and once you pay for them, then you can go on uh, into heaven. But you could be paying for it for a very long time. It's purgatory. It's made up. It's not in the Bible. A lot of folks believe that. Um, so what they did, though, very clever, they created what is called an indulgence. And uh, so like a medieval monk by the guy by the name of like Tetzel would run around and they'd have a lot of drama about this and frightening people and saying, but listen, if you want to get your loved ones out of hell or out of purgatory, let me tell you what you do. You can buy an indulgence from me. And this is how they would fund the building of like some giant cathedral. And people go, man, I don't want my mother or my aunt burning in like this purgatory. And they'd pay money and they'd get a little piece of paper. But it's all worthless. It was actually one of the issues that a guy by the name of Martin Luther, who was a Catholic scholar, Catholic priest, is like, this is wrong. You know what this is? It is manipulation. Infiltration, manipulation, separation. Let me give you another that's out there. Uh, The word of faith movement. Uh, This is the idea that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit 
and this is what they teach, to replicate the incarnation in believers so that you can become a little God. Okay? They believe this is what God really originally intended, that you would become a little God. And as little gods, you've got the ability to manipulate the faith force. You can be prosperous in all areas of your life. You can be overcome illness, overcome any sin, overcome failure. And if you can't, the problem is you. You don't have enough faith. You see, it's a, it's a situation where they can never be wrong. They're teaching this. I tell you, lots of people believe this. And if it's not working, you keep getting sicker. You don't actually get all the wealth. You never get the raise or whatever. The problem is you. You don't have enough faith. You know what that is, don't you? It's manipulation. And what they do is they, they believe that you can actually will God's promises right into existence in your life. They treat faith like a force, sometimes even like a weapon to get what you want. I want to give this warning. If there are folks that are teaching things that are contrary to the Bible, they've got some new revelation they want to add. They've got some prophecies of what God is telling them to tell you. Friends, I would beware. Really, God has made the Bible clear and understandable. If they claim they've got the exclusive ability to interpret this Bible, friends, steer clear and watch out. Let me tell you another front that is so prevalent in this war for human hearts that's taking place in the church, and that is the market-driven philosophy. And this really basically kind of taps into the worst mood of our age. It caters people's, to people's first love. You remember what we saw last week where they'll be lovers of self? So instead of saying lovers of self is a bad idea, they say, actually, it's a good idea. You just want to love yourself. And so in the market-driven philosophy, it kind of goes like this. You can have God... And he'll in no way confront any sin or any issue that's going on in your life. Your selfish life, lifestyle, your materialism, your sin, and I, it's not a big deal. You just, God just wants to be your friend, okay? But don't worry about him confronting sin because that's not important. And this idea of just self-love and you can have God with it, that appeals to a lot of folks and they go to it like droves. And then kind of you got the market driven, but you also have like this postmodern church. And this I kind of believes that that the, takes the world's approach that, well, in the postmodern world, all things are relative and subjective. For instance, there's no objective truth. You can't know anything for certain. They even hold their own beliefs pretty loosely because after all, it's postmodern. So you can't really know for certain if you're actually true or not. The idea that God has spoken in the Bible, that what he's written is true, I don't know. I mean, it's open for discussion and debate. It's certainly a good book, and a lot of people have experienced a lot of good things, but we're not certain that it's absolutely true. And so basically like the Athenians that were just looking for something new and novel to embrace. And like the modernists of centuries ago, or the modernists uh, a century ago, churches today have kind of moved into like a postmodern mentality. And what they've decided is this. Doctrine is divisive. Objective truth. You know what? That's creating divisions. And so what's happened is, you know what we really need to value? We need to have a superficial peace. Because that's more important than sound teaching. We just need to kind of, let's get folks to get along and be along. And we're not going to talk about anything that might divide us. And so they don't. 
And so what happens is you just appeal to the modern age. You just want to be friendly and agreeable. And a lot of pastors, they just want to be liked. And they want their people happy, and they want you coming back. So let's not talk about anything that might confront any sin issue in your life. And so what happens is the relevant issues of our day, they've got to be sidestepped. Like relevant issues in our day are radicalism, abortion, homosexuality, feminism. we got to steer clear of that. Do you know there is a Christian feminism? It's a rising movement. Feminism has the idea that uh, we want to abolish any uh, gender-based roles in society, church, family. That's all wrong, okay? And so you've got Christian feminism. The idea that there are roles in a family. There's like a husband and a wife. Father and mother, no way. We have evolved past that. That there are gender roles, like elders are to be males in a church. That is wrong and offensive to women. That's what Christian feminism says. And so what happens is you've got to sidestep these issues somehow. Because if, after all, you're just trying to make people happy, you're, like he talks about in chapter 4, tickling ears, what takes place is you can't defy the spirit of the age. And so what you need to do is somehow you've got to get around it. You either go silent or you capitulate. Because you, if you're driven by a market-driven mentality, you cannot forfeit your market appeal. And so what happens is they either keep silent or they capitulate. They're like, well... You know, a lot of people believe this, and this is kind of the culture where the culture's going. Let's go with it. And it's popular. Listen, if the church will not be willing to take a firm stand on simple truth, will not be willing to take stand, like, let's just take something that's pretty clear, like on the issue of abortion. We all know where babies come from. We all know that life begins at conception, and we know that babies grow and develop, Right? And we know that when they're born and we recognize them as humans. Well, that's the only way where babies come from. When we start killing them in the womb, what's going on? And that's murder. That is a moral issue. It's not, well, that's a political issue. And so we're going to sidestep that. A lot of people believe differently on have different views on that. Friends, we have to recognize that there is truth and there's morality. And it's not defined by culture. It's defined by God. And so what happens is, if you will capitulate on that, when it comes to the doctrines of the Bible, you're going to sidestep those. You'll give up on those. Because why? After all, you say the primary attribute that we want to focus on is God, that he's benevolent. And that means that it'll override and supersede holiness, God's justice, his wrath, or his sovereignty. So what's happened in a lot of churches in this battle for human hearts, we're not talking about issues like sin, that there is a judgment that Jesus is coming back, you just got to stick with some topics that are going to be helpful for people. Talk about uh, psychological issues, contemporary topics. And I'm not saying you shouldn't address those. You should. But let's get down to the fundamental core of relationship with God, of why you need to trust Christ, why sin is so detrimental, and why God, the gospel of grace is so powerful. And so now in a lot of modern churches, they're not looking for pastors that can teach the Bible that are they're looking for marketers that can appeal to the people and so what happens is you've got this war going on what is written in this text is being played out in our society right before our eyes and some of these trends they have popular people who have some very persuasive platforms let me give you a few so i think many of you are familiar with a woman named oprah winfrey 
very popular person. Um, in January 1st, 2008, and they'd talked this up for quite some time, they offered on their satellite station, Oprah and Friends, beginning in January 1st, a year-long course on the book, A Course in Miracles. That book, by the way, that workbook, has sold over 2 million copies. And on Oprah's show, she had her dear friend, Marianne Williamson, kind of present and walk people through this. Now, uh, you need to know that Marianne Williamson is one of today's premier New Age leaders. And they talk about Jesus and about faith. But let me give you some excerpts from the Jesus of A Course in Miracles. These are just some quotes. I'm just go through them. Like they say, there is no sin. That a slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Do not make the pathetic air of clinging to the old rugged cross. The name of Jesus Christ as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. That God is in everything I see. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. The oneness of the creator and the creation is your wholeness, your sanity, and your limitless power. And the atonement is the final lesson that he, speaking of humanity, need learn. For it teaches him that never having sinned, he has no need of salvation. Does that sound like the Bible? It's not. But you've got a lot of folks that are like, ah, really? No sin? No need for a savior? I'm good, right? Let me give you another. There's a guy by the name of Joel Osteen. He's a pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston. Went on his website this week. They claim they're the largest church in the United States with over 38,000 people that go on their, to their weekly meetings. Um, his sermons, by the way, are viewed by more than 20 million people each month. Now, Joel Osteen is known as an evangelical pastor. He avoids critical subjects like sin, judgment, hell, God's justice. Because they're deemed as negative and people don't need more negative in their life. In, when Mitt Romney was running for president, December 23rd, 2007, uh, obviously oh, there was a lot of discussion, are Mormons Christians? And for Mormons who have attempted for years to be accepted as mainstream, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this was a huge step. And so they had on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace an interview with this very well-known evangelical pastor, Joel Osteen. And let me give you the question that Chris Wallace forwarded. He said, uh, after, after Joel Osteen said that Mormons are true Christians, so he said, Wallace said, so for instance, when people start talking about Joseph Smith, the founder of the church, and the Golden Tablets in upstate New York, and God assuming the shape of a man, do you not get hung up in these theological issues? And Joel Osteen replied, well, I probably don't get hung up on them because I haven't really studied them or thought about them. And, you know, I just try to let God be the judge of that. I mean, I don't know. I certainly can't say that I agree with everything that I've heard about it. But from what I've heard from Mitt, when he says that Christ is a savior to me, that's a common bond. And the Mormons took a major step in the mainstream based on his statement. Now, that's a pretty devastating endorsement for Mormonism. Do you know what Mormons believe? Let me just give you a few things. Mormons, for instance, believe there is more than one God. They believe that Jesus Christ is the spirit brother of Lucifer. They do not want to discuss this. That's a Mormon uh, missionary, some elders. I think there were like 19. Uh, we had a ch chance to talk about some of these issues. They believe that Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. 
They believe that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone, that Jesus Christ was born as a result of sexual intercourse between God the Father and Mary, that God the Father was once a man, that if you're a male and good standing in the Mormon church, you can become a god and rule over your own planets, that for a half century they believe that Adam is our father and God, and that Jesus Christ is a polygamist. Mary and Martha are among his wives. Is that biblical Christianity? Absolutely not. You see, Mormons have a different God, a different Savior, a different gospel, a different eternal state, and they have a different scriptures when you add in their Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Let's uh, take it up to just something that happened pretty recently. There is a woman, I'm sure, if you're a lady, you are probably familiar with Jen Hatmaker. She is highly influential among teens, young moms, ladies. She's a well-known author. She's the mother of five. She and her family star on the HTV series, My Big Family Home Renovation. She speaks to sold-out crowds in evangelical gatherings of women like the If Gathering, Women of Faith, and Belong to Her. Now, I believe Jen has done a lot of good, and she's been very helpful. But in October of this past year, uh, she came out with this statement that she believed that the Bible affirms gay marriage. October 2016, Religion News Service, she said that she believes that the LGBT relationships can be holy. In case you're not sure what LGBT stand for, it's initialism that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. She believes that these relationships, they're holy. Her husband... Brandon Hatmaker is a pastor just down the road in Austin. He came out on Facebook and he said he 100% agrees with his wife when it comes to belief that monogamous same-sex marriages can be considered holy. So they kind of entered that in, but hey, if they're committed to each other or if they're married, then it can be considered holy. But friends, that is 100% false. The clear teaching of the scriptures. I mean, you want to see it? Look at Leviticus 18, 22, 2013, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He clearly spells out that sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, is wrong. And he calls out homosexuality. But what we've got, we've got, you know, this is a gal. She's very popular. So there's a lot of books. A lot of people go to her blog. When she says, you know what, they're all holy, there's a lot of folks that go, Okay, that sounds good, and it fits in with the culture of this age. The result, though, is she's leading people away from mercy, away from the gospel, away from help, away from hope, away from life. Friends, if you love people, you will tell them the truth. Listen, if you don't love people, you just want them to like you, then don't tell them the truth. Do not ever tell them what God has said in his word. Never call them to forgiveness and life in Christ. Never call them to the gospel. Just say, you know, it's all fine. Friends, you and I do not define morality. God does. And what happens? This is the pattern. You say, God is love, and God's love allows us to reinterpret the clear teaching of the Scripture with a new interpretation that better suits our understanding of love. And that's what happens. And by the way, if you wonder what Jesus thinks about morality, immorality in the church, or what he thinks about false teachers, he's written on the subject. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters that are given, given by Jesus. Just read them and you will find out his heart on false teaching and a wrong morality. 
So the attack plan is the same. Infiltrate, manipulate, separate. So what do you look for when you're discerning truth from error in spiritual leaders? Look at what they believe. What do they teach? What do they believe about the Savior? About salvation? About Scripture? What do they believe about what the Bible teaches about morality and hell, God and heaven and our purpose? Look at what is the nature of the character of these people that are saying these things. And then finally, look at the spiritual condition of their congregation, if they're like a pastor, or the people that follow them, because oftentimes they look a lot like the leader. You see, the absence of truth makes way for the presence of lies. So let me just give you some elements for growth and health. I do not want you to buy into error. So what you need is personal development. You need to believe the gospel. You need to trust in Christ. You need to address the sin issues and the guilt issues in your life so you're not susceptible to somebody peddling something that is false. You also need personal discernment. Probably one of the most important questions that Christian can ask is Romans 4, 3a. What does the scripture say? Not what does this person say? Not even what, what does Grant say? Is what does the scripture say? Because the Bible is God's authority on these issues. And then... You want to have personal delight. Love the Lord your God. And you experience his love and express it. It's going to keep you walking in the truth. You see, the absence of truth makes way for the presence of lies. And you need to understand, if you get off track, that affects not just your life, everyone you influence. If you're a dad, you're a mom, a grandparent, you're a, you got friends, you're wrong direction. If you go down it, it influences a lot of folks. I think a lot of us are familiar with the tsunami that hit October 25th, 2010 in the Indonesian islands. I mean, just overwhelmed them. And there were hundreds of people that died, like all, like total villages just washed off the face of the earth. And the people that did survive this said that, you know what, like all of these deaths or most of them, most of them, it could have been avoided. You see, they actually had what's called a tsunami warning system. They're the, called the dart buoys. And what they do is they have them out in the ocean and when there is a, an especially large wave, like a tsunami coming, the boy rises and it sends a signal to the island that trouble is coming. There is a massive wave. Escape. Well, they, on the Indonesian islands, they actually had these two boys. But guess what? They didn't work. The wave came. They didn't send a signal. And all these people died. I tell you this because the church has the truth and the word. We send a signal. We don't want people experiencing judgment. We don't want them going to hell. We want them to know forgiveness of sins, life in Christ, hope, eternity. And friends, we've got false teachers that are basically like, a, like one of those strangler figs. They're just cutting, cutting us off. We do not function like we should. And the absence of truth makes way for the presence of lies. So let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. It is powerful. It confronts the age in which we live and its wisdom. So Lord, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ and perhaps believed things that are not true, would today be their day of salvation? We just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from being a lover of self and I turn from my sin. And today I believe in Christ and the gospel. And Lord, for all of us, would you give us wisdom and discernment, a delight in you, an ability to truly love people, to tell them the truth in love, and to not be persuaded by the lies that are around. So we ask this as we pray in Jesus' name.